0: Here, there were just five of us, um, and we've continued to expand. The two children in the front there are my son and daughter, who are 10 and 7 now, Simone and Cormac. And uh, it's wonderful to be here with you in this church where I get to see some people who have been here for a long time and seen some familiar faces. And then what a great part about being part of God's family, that when you go somewhere new and meet new people that already are connected in Christ and you're brothers and sisters in Christ. So thanks for the chance to be here, and thanks for the invitation, Lucas, to be here. Another reason that Bayview Glen is so special in our lives is that 13 years ago in January, uh, on a day a little colder than this, my wife and I came, and Bayview Glen Church prayed for us and commissioned us to move to Haiti. A couple days later, my mom and dad drove us to the airport. My wife, Shelly, and I had just been married for two years at that point. They drove us to the airport, we took off our Toronto winter jackets in the car, hustled into the airport, and 24 hours later we were living out in the Haitian countryside with no running water, no electricity, a tin roof over our heads. We had one little room in this home of a subsistence farming family. The door almost shut all the way between our room and the next room, and we lived with this family for seven months. They didn't speak any English, we didn't speak any Creole, and they became like family, and we learned from them, and we worked with them, and we went out in the fields with them, and it became part of shaping us so that we could work in Haiti for the long term. And I'm still working in Haiti 13 years later. We lived there for two and a half years, and now live in Florida and go back and forth. But I was thinking about this story when I was getting ready to come and speak with you here. Soon after that happened, so we're here in Toronto, enjoying the winter, doing all of that, get in a plane, we're in Haiti these 24 hours later and not too long after that I started to get to know people and every day we would, you know, try to learn a few vocabulary words and just everything is so different from anything we've ever experienced before. Um, We're there for a little while and I noticed that the men would occasionally walk cows down the path. Um, I have as much familiarity with cows as maybe most of you do um, in Toronto, which is Harvey's, you know, being the main way that I interact with cattle uh, when I lived here. But then I'm there and I see these cattle going by and then I see a 12-year-old kind of going down the path with a cow, and one day one of the neighbors, we can barely speak at this point because I don't know, Creole, he doesn't know English, and a neighbor sort of says, you know, he indicates I should go with him out to the farm field, and that's part of how we're learning culture and learning the language. So I go with him out to the farm field, and then there's some cows there, and I had never realized that cows that aren't bulls have horns. I don't think I'd known that too, so there's a pretty good-sized cow with horns, and he kind of indicates, okay, it's my turn to take this cow to water. And I thought, all right, I, I've seen 12-year-olds do it, I, I can handle this. So um, he gives me the rope, and I'm thinking, this is a little crazy, but I, I'm, you know, I'm already al- halfway into crazy, so I've got to keep going. Start walking this cow down the dirt path. And, uh, and at some point a little lo- along the way, he starts to trot a little. I think, all right, that's, well, I, can, I can trot. Uh, so we keep on going along, and then he starts to run or she actually, she starts to run. And so I'm running, and before long, this cow is running at a pretty good pace. I'm in shorts and flip-flops. We're running down these paths. I'm tugging like it's doing nothing. It's like a mosquito stinging an elephant or something. Like I'm just pulling on this thing, and this cow is running. I'm hurling, jumping over canals, running after, and then as I run past this one dirt path that goes by where I know most of the neighbors, I start hearing everybody calling out, "Lagel!" Lagel. I've only been in the country for like two weeks. I don't know what Lagel means. <laughs> like, it seems like there are two obvious options, right? One is let go, everything will be okay. But the other option is if you let go, the cow will continue running, trample small children, and disappear forever. <laughs> and so I just don't know what to do. But eventually the cow runs too fast. I can't keep up. I let go. They all come around and start laughing, and I find out that laguel does mean let go. So it's a vocabulary lesson that I don't recommend, but it, you make sure you don't forget the word uh, laguel. And it was part of me kind of going, and as, as Pastor Lucas introduced, in this work of justice and in all these spiritual disciplines you've been looking at, part of what we do here is let go of the control of our lives so that God can take control and grow us. And we're not trying to do it on our own, but we're attached to the true vine who is Jesus and growing in our lives. We're gonna look at the spiritual discipline of doing justice today. For Shelley and I, a big part of doing justice in the past 13 years has been in working in Haiti. A big part of the work we've done is in education and working with churches in Haiti. Haiti. Haiti is a very Christian country. And what we've been doing is trying to help people to deepen in their faith and engage for justice, which really goes along with what we're talking about today. Deepen in faith and engage for justice. We've worked with churches all over the country to give them materials for Bible studies. Uh, in partnering with the Canadian Bible Society, we've given out tens of thousands of Bible to people in Crail in their own language. People are so grateful. We've also now started to have a group of uh, seminary students who are getting full scholarships from us, and going to seminary, the bright young leaders of the next generation of the Haitian church are able to give scholarships to us to them, and they're interning with us, and we see them sh- just transforming as leaders who are making a difference in their communities. And you, Bayview Glen, have been a big part of this ministry. Even if you're new here or just started attending in the last year, you know that this is part of the the history, and with many other people as well, this history of work happening, lives being transformed because of the faithfulness of this church and its generosity of many of you in making this possible. It's amazing work to be part of, to get to do this, work with people in the country of Haiti where there are 10 million people and it's one of the poorest countries in the world. There's still a lot of hope, but there's a lot of suffering. So we focus on the hope and we focus on the difference we can make. But I'm, when I'm here with you and thinking about this practice and this discipline of doing justice, if I'm really honest with you, it's hard work sometimes. And it's discouraging sometimes. And Change doesn't come as fast as you want. And, and to change and help make the world more just, it's way more complex than we ever wished it were. As I've been reflecting on that, on the hope and the ability to make a difference in people's lives, but also the difficulty of making a difference, I've spent a lot of time in the past few years thinking about the Lord's Prayer, which you all looked at together last week as you looked at the spiritual discipline of prayer Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That last part, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed that prayer 2,000 years ago and the prayer isn't all the way answered yet, is it? When we see what's happening in Syria, when we have a loved one suffering under the weight of depression, when a friend is diagnosed with cancer, when people are suffering without enough food or education in Haiti, thy kingdom hasn't yet come on earth as it is in heaven. And what is this kingdom? We see visions of the kingdom throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and Jesus talks about this kingdom and gives hints and parables and metaphors. As I've thought about this kingdom recently, I've just thought about the phrase, God's kingdom, and heard someone say, well, one way to spark our imaginations about this kingdom that's coming informed by scripture is to say, well, what would it look like if God were king? If our loving compassionate God who cares about the flourishing of every one of his children in the world were king, how would the world look different? If our loving, compassionate, caring God who wants every person to flourish were king in Toronto, how would it look different? Maybe a way to sharpen that question even a little bit more is to say, if our loving, compassionate, caring God who wants everyone to flourish were king, whose life would change the most? And I think that hints at what the spiritual discipline of doing justice is. Whose life would change the most? Now we're instructed to be, to have our lives, all of us as Christians, in our work, wherever, wherever we work, in Toronto, in another country, somewhere else. Like, this is part of our mission. This is part of our Christian life, to be doing justice. And how do we know that? I mean, one, one obvious place, inspiring place, is to think about when Jesus started his ministry. So Jesus went to Nazareth, and what did he say? Jesus came there, and when Jesus got to the synagogue he had been brought up, he went up on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's, from the, that's Jesus, that's our Savior speaking, quoting from Isaiah, and I think of another prophet, Micah, who said, well, what is life about? What is our life supposed to be about? Well, it's about three things, to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. This is our invitation. This is the, the, the tension of this practice of doing justice. This is why we need a trellis to help support us is because this can be a slow kingdom coming, this kingdom of God that transforms our lives and we see it. It's here with us, but we know it's not all the way here with us yet. So as I've worked on this and I've thought about this and wrestled with how to, how to sustain my life and how I see other people sustaining their lives and doing the work of justice, uh, I've written a book the last few years and called it Slow Kingdom Coming. Slow Kingdom Coming, this prayer, kind of in line with this prayer that Jesus prayed. And one reason is we can say Slow Kingdom Coming and it helps us to lament. To lament and say the world is not as we wish it were. Not yet. There's too much suffering and too many people suffering, and you have suffering in your lives. But when we say slow kingdom coming, and it's like a signpost on the way, we say, but this is our hope. Like, this isn't all bad news. This is Christ working to transform the world. Slow kingdom coming is a hope that the kingdom is coming. We know that Jesus' prayer is going to be answered Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So this is our hope. And then what happens next? Well, if this is our hope, then it also has to be our commitment. If this prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is our hope, it has to be our commitment. And if it's our commitment, if that's part of what we're, grow, we're supposed to grow into and flourish into, if this is our commitment as these branches on the vine of Jesus, then, then what's the trellis that can help us grow and do this and to do it well because we know it's not easy. Let's look together at three different practices that can help us to do the work of justice. Three practices that can help you in your spiritual discipline of practice when you're at work, when you're in ministry in the church, if your life is being called to go somewhere else. I think these three practices can help transform the way you do justice so that we're honest about the fact that it's hard, but we're also completely hopeful with the fact that God is transforming the world through God's Spirit working in us. The first practice we're gonna look at to help us do this spiritual discipline of justice is attention, as in paying attention. Now, paying attention is not always the easiest thing to do these days. Now, I do want you to pay attention to the new Bayview Glen app, but other apps have the tendency every once in a while to call us off track, right? And so, as we get called off track, it's a reminder that, oh, sometimes we really do need to pay attention. And why do we pay attention? We pay attention because we want to be linked in On the trellis to growth. I want to read this with you now, and Pastor Lucas has done this with you before, but I wanted to read this with you now and think about how we can have this experience of being linked in with the true vine. So, repeat after me as we read this I am a branch, my job is to bear fruit. Jesus is the vine. He gives me life. The Father is the vine dresser. He prunes me so that I bear fruit. And part of the way he prunes us is by calling our attention to what your role and what your calling is in the kingdom. So I'm going to tell you a story about attention. There's a church not too far away in Holland, Michigan called Calvary Church. And Calvary Church, I've gotten to know over the last six years because they've become involved in Haiti, and I've gone to visit them in Holland, Michigan. It's a church that started uh, over 100 years ago, and a healthy church and growing. But then, you know, about 20 years ago, they started growing more, and their ministry got more vibrant, and they kept growing and growing. And so they came to the point where they needed to grow into a new building, because they couldn't sustain, the church couldn't come together within the walls of this building anymore. So they spent years and they had to raise, they raised I think four and a half million dollars over a number of years to build a new building to sustain the ministry and the community. They built this church, it's phase one of the church, they made it all the way through, they raised the money, and they got to the end and they were ready to have a mortgage burning ceremony. So they were excited about this. They go, and Pastor Frank, who I've gotten to know as a friend, Pastor Frank is ready for this mortgage burning ceremony, and they're already talking about phase two and phase three of the plan. They get to that point, and he goes on a two-day retreat right before, just getting ready and thinking he's going to retreat so he can prepare for the celebration and for you know, pushing on to the next stage. But he goes on the retreat and realizes he is exhausted. He's exhausted. The church is exhausted. They're all tired. And he realizes, as he starts to pay attention in this moment, you know what, we need to be refreshed. And he thinks of the story of Jubilee in the Bible where Israel was instructed to have this moment of refreshing and renewal and looking outward and rearranging, reordering things. Well, they get to that moment. He comes back to the church and says, you know what, let's not do phase two yet. Let's have a, a, a year of Jubilee. So they'll decide, okay, let's have a year of Jubilee. So they decide as a church, okay, we just fill and build our building. Let's help other people build their buildings. So they go to Brooklyn, and they go to India, and they go to China, and they go to Haiti, and they help a bunch of other people build their buildings. And they go on trips to visit all these buildings. And then they come back together... And Pastor Frank thought, all right, we're, we're back together. He had already printed up the brochures for phase two to get going on this plan. The church comes to get back together, and they say, you know what? We don't want to just have a year of Jubilee. We want to be a church of Jubilee. And their attention was awoken. Their ch- attention got awakened to the work of justice. And what happened then, they put these brochures aside, and they thought, well, what is this journey God's awakened our attention to this justice and this need around the world. What is this gonna mean? So then the next stage, their attention was awakened. The next stage was their attention got focused. They thought, well, we can't do everything. We can't work all over the world and solve all the problems of the world. So we need to focus, and they chose, well, we're gonna focus on working in Haiti and we're gonna focus on working our community in Holland. So they started sending trips and they were going I, I preached there once and we had a Sunday evening and there were about 400 people there. And I said, how many of you have been to Haiti? Because I knew a lot of them had, and about 350 people raised their hands. This church was engaged and they got focused because when we focus our attention, then we're able to be renewed in it. So they renewed in their attention And as they renewed in their attention outward, they also renewed their attention in their community. They've gotten involved in after-school tutoring and helping education and foster care, all these beautiful things. And to me, what I think is really beautiful about the story of Calvary, and their times to build buildings, and their times to do phase two and phase three, what what I thought was amazing, and, and it caused me to spend some time looking at my own life, was they awakened to justice, and they focused on it, and they found ways to renew. So thinking about this story of Calvary, I want to invite you now to think about your own story. Where is God awakening your attention to justice? Think of those questions of if God were king, and whose life would change the most? Now for some of you, it's going to be, maybe you're on the edge of getting involved in one of the ministries of the church. And it's time to take that step as part of the spiritual discipline of doing justice. For others, maybe you're spread too thin and you and your family would benefit from your narrowing your focus. For some, it will be an extra ministry of the church. For some, it will be doing justice in a way at your work and doing something different at your work. But all of us are called to do justice. So what I wanna do now is invite you to take a minute and close your eyes, time of prayer, to be listening to God Saying, okay, if this spiritual discipline of doing justice is important, then where is God calling your attention right now? If the spiritual discipline of doing justice is important, where is God calling you to be doing justice now? We'll take a minute. Amen. We can't solve all the problems of the world. None of us can. Even a church, hundreds of us together can't. But each of us is called to engage with our gifts to doing justice in the world. Then something else I've found, and this will be the second practice of doing justice that we'll talk about now, is that I've found there's incredible freedom in my work of doing justice, and I've seen this in other people as well, in practicing confession practicing confession. Now, this isn't a usual thing that you hear when you hear people talking about doing justice. But for me, it's rooted in James 5.16. James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the work of justice is the work of healing, the work of, as Pastor Lucas said, the work of reconciliation of the world. So how can confession help you in the work of doing justice? For me, there have been a couple of confessions, and there, there are more than this, but a couple of confessions that have helped me is when I realized that I wanted to feel good when I did justice. And when I confessed that to God and confessed that to the people I was working with, it freed me to do better work. So then instead of going in and thinking, oh, how can I feel best about helping someone else? I can be freed by God to say, oh, actually, I wanna feel good when I do justice that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to really help someone else well. I mean, this is amazing that as Christians we have the opportunity to confess to God not as self-flagellation or as a way to suffer or to feel more, more guilt, but as an access to grace, of God's grace. So when we confess, okay, maybe I want to feel good when I give, is that getting in the way of my doing justice at all? Or another one that I need to confess sometimes is that I get compassion fatigue. Do any of you familiar with the phrase compassion fatigue? It's a phrase I hear sometimes and I know that I feel sometimes. So compassion fatigue is what it sounds like. It's when your compassion is emptied out. You have nothing left to give. Your heart feels empty of being able to, you know, watch a TV story one more time. So one more disaster comes across the TV screen and not just the U.S. presidential elections. Like, if a different kind of disaster comes on the TV screen, you have a chance to say, oh, sometimes we're there and we can take it all in, and many of you were generous, like after the Haiti earthquake, but other times, man, I've got no compassion left to give. Or another person invites you to give money. To help someone or for me and this is kind of ugly to admit or maybe I'm at church or I'm in my neighborhood and I'm walking down the down and I see someone who I know is kind of in a needy place right now and I turn and go the other way or avoid the conversation because it's just too heavy and I don't have something to give. So why confess compassion fatigue? And I think there can be two ways that you get to compassion fatigue. One is if you're giving too much and you're giving of yourself and getting emptied. The other might be that the rest of your life is so busy that it feels like compassion fatigue even if someone just asks something little of you. So it's not an excuse either way, but I think compassion fatigue and thinking of confession as part of doing justice is really beautiful because it can help us connect to the trellis of what supports us. When I confess compassion fatigue, then I can be renewed and know, oh, I'm not the vine. Jesus is the vine. And I'm not the vine dresser, the Father is the vine dresser. So then if we're really going to do justice, we're in the posture of confession, we can be completely transformed in our lives and God's love can flow through us and it's not all up to you and it's not all up to me and then we have a chance to really start working for deep transformation. And moving into the third practice of doing justice, we've looked at attention, at confession, and now at partnering. To do good work of justice, we need to be really good at partnering. Because your attention is awakened to helping, like a need, someone you need to help in the world, something we need to make a difference in. And then we confess, well, we can't do it all on our own. All of us have vulnerabilities and we have our sinful selves and we can't accomplish it and we'll run out of compassion. So then to me, what I have found is often when we think about doing justice, a way a lot of us end up talking about it and the reasons for this is like helping someone else out. So like we reach down to help someone else out or give them a hand up or these metaphors where we're in a position of going to save someone else. But I think if we're the vine and if we're all God's children, then the posture of confessing or, you know, like even being down on our knees, like this is where we can enter into the work of justice. That we're not going in the place of Jesus. We're going as someone else who needs Jesus, who needs Jesus to transform the world. When I'm in this position to partner Then I can hear what other people need, too. I can know what really needs to happen. I can confess my vulnerabilities. And we can enter into letting God transform us together. For me, I've learned a lot about this from a young woman named Erwin. Erwin, I met her five years ago in Haiti, 22 years old. And when I first met her, because we'd invited her into this seminary student program that we're doing, I thought we'd made a really bad mistake. Because we'd picked 15 students to start out in this program. We give them full scholarships, and they intern with us, and they're taking our Bibles and distributing them and doing all this work. And so we got together with these 15 dynamic young leaders who our Haitian colleagues had chosen, and Erwin basically sat in the corner and didn't talk to anybody (laughs) That is not the ideal leader who's going to change Haiti or change the world. So I thought, oh, well, you know, every once in a while there's a dud. You know, not that a person is a dud, but just in this program, thought, oh, well, we missed with Erwin. It's too bad, but so it goes. It seems like we have 14 other really dynamic people. Then this is a story. I'm going to show you a video in a second. The story that Erwin told me just three years later, blew me away, and there are two things I want to point out before you see her story. One is the way that Erwin practiced these three things. Her attention was awakened to justice, and this justice that her attention was awakened to that we work on in Haiti is that about 200,000 children live in servant or slave-like conditions away from their homes with other families what you'd hear called human trafficking sometimes. Her attention was awakened. And then she confessed her weaknesses, which was shyness and sort of a vulnerability that had her sitting over in the corner when I first met her. And then she partnered, and you partnered. Baby Glen partnered in helping me to be down there to give materials, a Haitian printer who believed in what we're doing, printed all these materials, even though he's barely making it and supporting his family. We have other friends like Enel, Angerville, a Haitian colleague who was training her. All these partnerships came together in Erwin's life. She confessed her vulnerability and it helped her to have this moment that you'll see shortly. Second thing I want to cut, in a way, cut off an escape route for you. When you see this, Erwin's going to be in a very different place than Toronto. She's in a church in Haiti. It's a really simple place. They don't have many of the physical, material things that we have. But I think if we watch and we're open, Erwin's story can be our story too. Because in one way it's dramatic, in another way it's a story about a young woman who paid attention, who listened to what God would have her do. And she had the courage one afternoon to actually follow through and partner with others to work for change. So let's hear a little bit about Erwin's story.
1: Moi, Erwin, moi, part of de programme leader michieu. Moi était timide en pile. Pour qu'amenant t'ait un plus d'impact sur moi, parce que l'hypothèse transformation dans la vie moi. Et puis après c'est un santé financée, façon vérité t'es lié séance. c'est Et puis, il a commencé à parler avec un visage qui est triste. Il dit que ce qui fait le mal, c'est parce qu'il a eu un petit qui a fait un petit monde passer à pas l'école. Il a fait un travail qui est en pile.
2: Papa m'a devine mourir avant tout. Et puis, ma maman, Tévin, fait un accident. Et puis, nan même moment, voulait passer la rallye, she prend toute sa liberté, qu'on y arrive pas pagne possibilité pour to continuer à vivre avec nous. He dans façon voyager avec et que des fois les même arriver frapper sans raison dit
1: à cause de toute ça le He en tant que maman ça fait mal en pile Et puis pendant de l'eau quitté situation ça coupable et puis li dit li décider pou li chercher ti petite liya pou li menel bay maman
2: ta toujours considérer fait de lan, toujours lancer message lan. Moune qui pas réfléchi même gens qui a mal agi avec moune et que les entendre ils peuvent pas arriver faire ça.
1: Li très bien parce que li la ca est que le content. Oh, me senti me content en pile parce que travail moins fait c'est à cause de séance la animée à qui fait t'imoune ça capable jouer une libération in the system with avec experience is a lot more powerful for me to be able to advance in me so that I can bring the changes that I want society that It's
0: beautiful what can happen in our lives when one of our disciplines is to do justice. And Erwin inspires me for how I can do the practice of justice. Having my attention awakened to where God is calling me to work in God's kingdom, to do the good work of God's kingdom. Confessing what are the vulnerabilities or my sins that would get in the way. A few minutes ago I invited you to reflect on where, where God might be leading you to do justice. And I encourage you, too, to confess what might get in your way of doing that, which God is calling you to do. And then Erwin partnered, including partnering with you with Bayview Glen Church to transform a woman's life, like this child's life. Someone who's leading one of the hardest lives in the world to be living in Haiti and to be at the very bottom and most vulnerable in all of Haitian society. This is the work of God's kingdom. This is what we get to be called to. Is there, I mean, isn't it amazing grace that we get to be called into this work and to experience it not as another thing on our to-do lists, but to experience it as grace, as grace that transforms your life and then grace that transforms other people's lives. I love that you're doing this series on the trellis and the vine for Lent. I love that it is called spirituality for normal people. It's the kind of spirituality that I need. Every once in a while I've done something that doesn't seem so normal. Some people, like my father-in-law, might say when we moved to Haiti, but now I live in Florida and I have a mortgage and I have two kids and this doing justice, and these three practices we've talked about today, I see it transform my life. I see it transform Erwin's life. I see it transform people's lives in Canada and in the U.S., and it can transform your life, too, because the season of Lent is preparation. It's a preparation time for what's coming, and what's coming is the crucifixion on Good Friday. But what's coming a few days after that? The resurrection. This is the invitation. Doing justice, it's the invitation to living the resurrection life. Where you can do justice. And you can love mercy. And by what wondrous, wondrous grace, you can walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Loving God, this is grace, abundant grace beyond beyond what we deserve to get to be invited into the work of your kingdom. We pray with Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives and in our city and in our world. We also pray that you would help to awaken our attention in the right place where you call us to do justice, each one of us and and this church, Bayview Glenn. May you help us to confess so that those things that would hold us back can be let go, that we can find healing. And may we find the right partnerships to work together for God's kingdom, that you would keep transforming us into the grace of this resurrection life which we know through jesus christ in whose name we pray amen